Hey, welcome to Saturday Night School. Just trying to get some rest here. I'm just, I'm really beat up. I feel like I might have something going on. Not, not that I'm ill. Not that I'm ill. Just overloaded, beat up in every way. And I'll tell you all about it. Now, I was thinking about a common topic on this show, which is people's need to have street credibility. Like the amount of time that's, that people spend trying to communicate that they have some sort of street credibility. It blows my mind. And it was something I noticed very early on in life. You know, it was one of my early observations about people as a kid was that a lot of people are trying to posture that they have some kind of street credibility. And what got me thinking about this today was inspired by Twitter, actually. And I try not to talk about Twitter too much because I'm not part of that. I observe it. And the reason I observe Twitter, if I haven't explained it before, not that I feel the need to explain, but the reason why I find Twitter particularly interesting when it comes to just pure observation as somebody who's not really a participant in it, who's just an observer and, and who wasn't an early user of it. The reason why I find it so interesting is because so much comes from there. So much comes from Twitter. 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 It is such a core part of the zeitgeist. And when people dismiss it, they're lying. They're either misinformed or lying. For example, I know Dave Chappelle, you know, given that he's become this controversial figure, he made a comment in the last month or so where he's like, Twitter's not real life. And the audience applauded. And I got news for you, it is. And then the fact that you're talking about it on stage to your audience shows that it is real life, which feels like a really stupid point for me to make, but it's true. Whenever somebody's like, social media is not real life. Oh, you know, social media doesn't matter. Twitter doesn't matter. As someone who's not invested in Twitter at all, as somebody who's simply an observer, it is real life. And the fact that Dave Chappelle is so preoccupied with it that he keeps talking about it tells me that he doesn't truly believe that statement he made, that Twitter isn't real life. And I first knew that Twitter was important years ago because as a football fan, I was interested in football news. As a football fan, I was interested in football news. little song there. Um, and I learned that all of the news was coming from Twitter. Like, I would go to these other websites. I wasn't, I wasn't looking at NFL news on Twitter. I never would have thought to do that ever. I was aware of the fact that football players and football journalists had accounts on there, that it was a way for them to interact with fans and talk about things. But I started to notice that all of the websites I went to for football news sourced Twitter. And that news was actually hitting Twitter before it was hitting any other place. Even ESPN was just recounting what they had seen on Twitter. And you would learn about a trade. You would learn about a player being signed. You would learn about injuries. You would learn about every little thing that was going on in the NFL first through Twitter. And even if you weren't using Twitter to get that information, whatever you were reading was getting their information from Twitter. It was where rumors started. So that was when I noticed that, okay, this is important. This is where the, this is the, this is at the heart of the current zeitgeist. 
And then now we can see with politics, we can see that so many journalists, I mean, we know that a lot of what's on the news these days, a lot of the talking points that are on the news come from Twitter as well. I know that people have commented how Tucker Carlson, some of his segments seem to have be just him reiterating what one of his writers saw on Twitter earlier that day. And I believe that's true. In the same way that it's true in the NFL, I believe it's true in politics. We can see where a lot is going on there. And a lot of important people, as well as relatively unknown people, publicly unknown people, have a lot of influence through it. So that's the reason why I observe it. And that's the reason why it is real life. And if, when you're like, oh, Twitter's not real life. Well, it's like, yeah, well, your real life isn't real life either. If you want to get really Buddhist about it, your real life isn't real life. Your interactions with your coworkers aren't real life. Half the things you say to your wife aren't real life. So it's always silly to me because it's such an old man point. That's what people used to say about the Internet years ago. Because I have a real life. People are like, go outside. I go outside all the time. I spend a lot of time outside. I have a vibrant, organic life that I personally live. But even, and even I am of the opinion that Twitter is important. As somebody who's not a big participant in it. As someone who has developed an organic life that I'm happy with and proud of. I would never dismiss the influence as far as our civilization and society go of a platform like that. Um, but anyway, I just had, I just have to say that because it seems to be like, like Dave Chappelle saying to his audience, meanwhile, Dave Chappelle in recent years, in the last year, has been completely hijacked by this Twitter backlash against him this social media internet backlash against him to the point where his stand-up specials are him talking about that to the point where most of his interviews deal with that in some way. And, and this isn't an indictment of Dave Chappelle. Like, he's fine, whatever. I'm not a fan, but he's fine. But it's like, obviously, this is important to you. But when someone gets on stage and they're like, Twit is not real life, and the audience is like, oh, my God, that's so true. That's so true. It's like, by participating in that joke, by him making that, com it's not even a joke, but by him making that comment and an entire audience erupting in applause, you're proving that it's real life. Because if it, if it wasn't real life, he would make that statement and everybody would just be like, yeah, sure, of course. Of course, you're just stating a fact. But the fact that people feel the need to applaud that and cheer. And that's what they do. That's the interesting thing. It's not just that. I've seen it happen more than once where a public figure like says, the internet isn't real life. Just go outside. And people are like, yeah. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Oh, it's like the fact that you react that strongly to somebody saying the internet isn't real life proves to me that it's real life. The fact that you have an emotional response and feel the need to cheer that on. But anyway, going back to the street credibility idea, some the reason why I had to give this, I don't think that was a, I don't think what I just did was a disclaimer. I think I'm just contextualizing why I am an observer and an occasional, and why I occasionally reference something like Twitter on here. 
Because there are some podcasts you listen to, and it's all Twitter. It's insane. It's just them reiterating what they saw on Twitter. And that's certainly not my show. That's certainly not what I do. I'm not invested enough in it to do that to do that and I don't say that to be cool oh, I'm not invested enough in Twitter to make my entire podcast about Twitter that's just the truth I'm not involved enough in it to to do that but anyway I just wanted to explain why that's why it shouldn't just be dismissed why it is a core part of the zeitgeist maybe the most influential as far as social media and the internet goes these days communication um, but uh, what I saw on Twitter, the reason why I wanted to talk about this is, you know, there was a thing that was a big deal on there where apparently some YouTube celebrity who I've never heard of had his car broken into or stolen and he made a post where he was like, oh, my car was broken into and stolen and I just want to thank the NY or the, I want to thank the LAPD for catching that motherfucker. Just a guy who's upset about something bad happening to him, which when something bad happens to you, it's your right to respond emotionally. It's your right to thank the LAPD It's for catching the guy. It's your right to be upset that somebody damaged your expensive property that you had to work to buy. That is your right. I think you should probably have some sort of mechanism in place that keeps you in check. But you know what? When something bad happens to you, all bets are off. You never know how you're going to respond. This guy felt the need to say publicly that his car got broken into. He was very mad, and he wanted to thank the LAPD for catching this quote-unquote motherfucker. But the actor Seth Rogen responded, and it's a big deal that I'm sure everybody who's aware of Twitter knows of. Everybody knows about this because it was like listed. It was like news. This is news. And uh, Seth Rogen responded and he was like, basically telling the guy, you shouldn't be angry. He's like, I guess I just don't see my. And then the guy was like, can't I just be angry about this? Like, like Seth Rogen shamed the guy for being upset about his car getting broken into. He said something to the effect of like, yeah, well, my car has been broken into 15 times. And one time the guy le- even left a knife. So I got something in return, which is a joke. But you could tell the real motive by this Seth Rogen guy was to shame the guy for being upset about his car getting broken into. And he was trying to pull the street credibility card. That's why I'm talking about it, because Seth Rogen was trying to pull the street credibility card, which is that, oh, yeah, well, my car has been broken into 15 times. And that's just a, a fact of living in the city. You, you ever heard of living in the city? You know, that sort of vibe, which I hate. I hate when people say things like that. I hate when people posture some sort of street credibility or city dweller credibility. Oh, yeah? You're upset about your car getting broken into? You ever lived in a city before? You know, it's just obnoxious. And coming from this big celebrity, this cosmopolitan, it's just like what you're trying to shame a guy who's upset about something bad happening to him. And the YouTube guy responded and he was he said something to the effect of, am I not just allowed to be angry about this? And Seth Rogen's like, "Eh, well, I just don't view my car as an extension of me. And, uh, you know, my car has been broken into 15 times. You know, it's just that sort of vibe. 
And it's, and it, it, you know, it's just, it's trying to scold somebody. It comes from a desire to scold somebody. It's self-superior. And it's not that I zeroed in on this alone. It just reminded me of how often people do that. How often they will scold you. And how that's such a, there's such a city element to that. Where people who live in big cities or who have lived in big cities, they try to posture this sort of street credibility. And it's sort of what I was getting at a couple nights ago when I was talking about my walk the night before Thanksgiving. And how on my walk, every single person I saw was a hunched over, completely dehumanized transient. And how I don't live in a big city. I live at the edge of a small city where the suburbs meet the the forest. And to me, it's significant that every single person I saw, and I'm not talking about one person, I'm talking about, you know, six or seven people on just a short walk. They were all just completely dehumanized, transient people. And didn't even have the posture of human beings, you know, just hunched over behaving strangely, behaving in an unhinged manner. And now somebody might respond, be like, what, you never seen a homeless person before? Oh, if you live in the city, oh, oh, you just need to go live in a city. It's like, I've been around, I mean, my neighborhood, for example, as long as I've lived here, there have been homeless camps nearby. It's been a fact of life for a long time. But as virtually everybody has noticed, it's ramped up. And there's also kind of been a change in the demeanor of the homeless people. There's been a change in their demeanor as well as they've grown in numbers. But how me saying that, like me just commenting, oh, on my walk tonight, everybody I saw was just some hunched over pigeon-toed transient doing something that seemed unhinged. And somebody would be like, what, you never seen that before? It's like, no, I've been seeing it every day for the last 15 years, and it's become amplified. But I don't want that to be normal to me. I don't want to allow, I don't want to live, I don't want to reach that point where I'm like, that's just called living in a city, because I don't live in the city. And how somebody would try to scold me for making that observation just like Seth Rogen scolded this guy for reacting to his car getting broken into. Oh, you, your car got broken into? That's cute. It's happened to me 15 times. That gives me more street credibility than you. And I'm actually more enlightened than you because I'm okay with it. Because I know that's just what it means to live in a city. Because I have street credibility. That's where that that's coming from. And of course, it's not enlightened at all. Because there is an enlightened perspective on that. Where something bad happens to you and you don't get upset. There's a Buddhist approach to that, which is just understanding that part of life is interacting with suffering. And hopefully you're not experiencing suffering all the time, but part of your life is going to involve misfortune and suffering. And as a result, you should learn how to control your response to that. And sometimes you are experiencing something resembling enlightenment where something very bad happens to you and you don't feel any ill will toward the person who did it. You don't feel a sense of loss. You don't feel angry. Sometimes you do experience that. 
But I can tell you this, when you experience that, when you, when you experience this sort of semi-enlightenment that allows you to deal with misfortune in a reasonable way, maybe reasonable isn't the best word, but in a, just in a well-balanced way, you don't feel like scolding someone for not doing that. Because when you, like a good example is, I've used the example, like a few days after my mom died, I went to the grocery store for the first time and there was a lady moving very slowly. So I went around her and it turned out that she was like trying to let a person in a wheelchair go down an aisle in front of her. And I didn't, me going around her didn't cause anybody any inconvenience, but she felt morally superior because in that moment she was moving slowly or stopping to let somebody in a wheelchair go through. And when I went around her, it's not like I got in the way of the wheelchair person, but because she was feeling so morally superior in that moment, oh, I'm stopping to let a person in a wheelchair go down this aisle. She turned around and shamed me for going around her because I wasn't stopping to let this person in a wheelchair go through. Even though my behavior actually had no impact on the person in the wheelchair, the fact that I went around her when she was doing this great deed, her great deed of the day, she turned around and shamed me for it. And I didn't even look at her. I didn't even respond. I laughed to myself because the joke is, is that she just shamed a guy who watched his mom die three days ago. And he's at the grocery store for the first time, which is kind of, you know, a pretty big thing if, you, if you're grieving to go do something normal. So it's like by being on this high horse, like, oh, I'm, I'm letting a, a person in a wheelchair move past me. And then getting mad at me for going around her. She just shamed somebody who had suffered the greatest loss of their life. And it was so funny to me because in that moment, I was experiencing something resembling enlightenment and didn't have to laugh. And I don't say that from a self-superior point of view. I'm just saying I was able to see the absurdity of it. But you know what? I didn't feel like turning around and saying, how dare you? How dare you? Oh, don't you realize how petty and puny you're being? You think you're being so morally superior by allowing a disabled person to go first? Meanwhile, you have no idea what other people are experiencing. You know, I didn't even, I didn't feel like scolding her because you never want to scold the scolder. And I don't bring up this silly Seth Rogen thing to scold the scolder either. But you see where this, this cycle just perpetuates where when someone does some, when someone scolds somebody, your first desire, like if you see through that, your first impulse is to scold them or to criticize them. It's to be like, oh, look at Seth Rogen scolding this guy for being upset that his car was broken into. Look at Seth Rogen. I'm going to scold him. And you can see where a lot of people respond that way. That, that isn't where I'm coming from on this. Where I'm coming from is just this desire to posture street credibility. And how that's just built into us. We're constantly trying to prove that, oh, we're more cultured. We're more cosmopolitan. You ever lived in a city before? You ever lived in a city before? Oh, that's cute. Oh, you went for a walk and you saw seven homeless people in one block? Even though you just live at the fringes of, of the suburbs and the woods? 
That's cute. I see, oh, I see a hundred billion homeless, I see a billion trillion homeless people when I take the garbage out. Because I live in a city. You ever lived in a city? There's a billion, billion homeless people. You know, that's the sort of response somebody might have, because I hear that response sometimes. And I mean, today I went to the post office, and when I was going into the post office, which is just a strip mall in the suburbs, the post office is just in this strip mall in the, in the suburbs. There's, there's a thrift store, there's just, there's a liquor store, just a few things, but there were a bunch of syringe caps like I, I just I noticed there were like five syringe caps just right outside of the post office. And me saying that, oh, that's cute. That's cute. Oh, you noticed five syringe caps outside of the post office at the strip mall? Oh, yeah, well, I live in the city. And I see a billion billion syringe caps. It's just normal. It's a fact of life. I've been seeing syringe caps for the last 15 years everywhere I go. Olympia has a lot of junkies. But I notice them because I don't want that to be normal to me. I don't want to pretend that's just a fact of living where I live. Because we can see where that's sort of mutated from something you experience in the city. We can see where, like, life is mutated from, oh, homeless people are something you see when you go to the city. Syringe caps are something you see a bunch of when you go to the city. We can see where that's mutated into syringe caps and and a bunch of homeless people are what you see when you go to the post office in the suburbs. What, you never been to the post office in the suburbs? You you can see where the, the, the goalposts change. And the more that you just treat that as something normal, it's not like you have to do anything about it, but I don't think you should condition yourself to see that as normal. Oh, yeah, when you go in the city, you might get robbed. That's normal. Oh, what's the matter? You, you don't have street credibility? I've been living in this city for 15 years, and I'm, I'm used to getting mugged. It's okay to get mugged. You know, I just don't see it that way. I just don't see it that way. And it's not that I get upset when I see syringes. It's not that I get upset when I see anything. It's kind of like litter. You know, you could just look at litter on its own and be like, litter's been a fact of life everywhere in the United States for as long as I've been alive. Litter isn't new at all to me. I've been seeing it since I was a kid, of course. But uh, I will never see litter as normal. I will never see litter as some sort of acceptable version of reality. It doesn't mean that I get upset at it. It doesn't mean that it affects me emotionally. But I just refuse to see that as a part of the normal reality I live in. It will always stand out to me. I will always notice it. Uh, It'll always look out of place to me. So seeing a bunch of syringe caps outside of the post office, that will never not be out of place to me. Seeing litter on the side of the road will never not be out of place to me taking a walk at night and only seeing people who are just threadbare human beings. And I feel for them. I don't demonize them, but it's not okay either. It's not okay that that's our reality that we're living in and being told to accept. 
And uh, so that's where I come from on it. But the desire in people to be like, because like, I, I told a story on here. I don't know if it was a story, but just a, a, a brief mention. I, I said something about this girl that I dated who had lived near the ghetto for like two months when she was in college. Whatever, whatever counts for the ghetto in Seattle, I don't really know. But she had lived near the ghetto for two months. And she was a girl who had lived a very sheltered life, very liberal, very liberal upbringing grew up in a bubble. But because she had spent two months living like at the very edge of the ghetto when she was in college, she felt like she had this street credibility, like, oh, well, you, the things I've seen. You, you don't even know the things I've seen. I, I, I lived for two months near black people. And it, that's a part of this. And when, when she would talk about it, it's not like she talked about it all the time, but it would come up during the short time we dated, which told me that it was on her mind a lot, that it was some form of street credibility that played into this greater need that human beings have to seem tough, to seem tougher than they really are, to use that one experience they had on the street, near the street, to milk that for all that it's worth. And I saw this growing up too. I mean, it was the source of the Wigger phenomenon. My favorite subject, the Wigger phenomenon. Most of that came not through a sincere love of rap, not through a sincere love of black culture, but because dressing and acting like a Wigger gave you this air of street credibility. And so many of the Wiggers I know came from decent ha households, but I liked the Wiggers because they went full in. When I've talked about this before, I've, I've made this point clear, which is that what I like about Wiggers is that they like went all in on this completely absurd way of dressing and talking and being. What bothered me more is growing up when I grew up, being in junior high, which I would say was those were the peak Wigger years, 1998 to 2002, 2001. I was in junior high, I think from 1998 to 2001. So being in junior high during that period, during that peak three-year window of wiggerdom, it wasn't the full-on wiggers that disturbed me because I liked that they kind of took on this clown personality and they had to live that way all the time. What bothered me were the people who were not full-on wiggers who would take on some of those affectations. There were a lot of people who would just occasionally kind of try to talk like a, like a, they would occasionally use street slang. They would occasionally try to act like they're tough. They would occasionally talk like a wigger. And you would see girls do this, which was funny. Like every once in a while, you would know some girl who came from a, a rich family and just in a random conversation, she would try to posture the street credibility because she listens to rap. And that always bothered me way more than the guy who just decides to sag his pants down to his knees and wear a visor. But the wigger phenomenon took off because largely suburban people needed a way to signal that they had street credibility. And some of them did come from poor households. Some of them did come from poverty. 
I knew some Wiggers who did come from like single mother households where she worked all day and they were just left to their own devices. And so they took that on because it was, they did have some kind of, they had, they at least had the credibility of poverty, which is another thing that middle-class and upper middle-class kids take on in the same way that girl I knew was like, Oh yeah, well I, I lived, I lived near the ghetto for two months in college. I lived near the ghetto for two months while I was going to my ultra liberal college. In the same way that people take that on, you notice how people from good families will be like, yeah, well, I, I was poor for a minute in college. Oh, one time I was in between apartments and I slept in my car for a night. I was homeless for a night. You know, you see where people do that. And it's a way of posturing credibility, some kind of street credibility. Oh, when I lived near the ghetto in college, uh, my car got broken into. It's just a fact of life. Oh, you can't... Oh, you're mad that your car got broken into? I got my car broken into when I lived near the ghetto in college. And that's just... It's called living in the city. You ever heard of living in the city? You know, it's, it's so obnoxious when people do that. But they, they seem to have a need to do it. And it's not just people that have never experienced real difficulty in life who do it. It's particularly popular with them. People who have had easy, relatively easy lives like to take that on. But sometimes you meet people too, though, who actually come from a difficult situation, but they want a posture too. But I, I, I think that's less common. I don't think they have as strong of a need to do that because they've actually experienced it. And if they do posture that, they're posturing a part of them that's real. And I, you know, I had a lesson in that. There was a guy when I was in uh, junior high who rented a room for us for a little while. He was a Puerto Rican kid from Florida. I think he was like 18 years old. He seemed, he was a few years older than me, so he seemed a lot older. But he was this like 18-year-old kid from Florida, Puerto Rican, and the reason why he was living in our area is because he was going to Nintendo's college. Nintendo had a college at their headquarters, the next town over, where they taught you how to develop video games. And so this Puerto Rican guy from Florida was going to that college and he rented a room for us. But being a Puerto Rican from Florida, you know, he had like friends and family members who were, you know, involved in gangs and things. I don't know. Not that that's a given if you're a Puerto Rican. But still, like he came from a certain part of Florida where he knew tough people and he didn't try to posture about it. I think it was just he was he was from a poor family, but he happened to be a video game nerd. And I I remember him telling me a little bit about it. His name was Pablo. And he told me something that really enlightened me. It was really an epiphany where he was like, oh, he's like, just so you know, he's like, all these guys who are, who are like acting like tough guys all the time, like those wannabes, he goes, those are the guys you have to worry about. He was like, the, the real gangsters, you don't have to worry about because they're not trying to prove anything. And he's like, the people you have to worry about are the wannabes. And it blew my mind and it was so true. It was so true because I had never actually thought about that. Because the way that wannabes had been framed when I was growing up were that those are the people to make fun of and not worry about. Like I grew up thinking like, oh, if someone's a wannabe, 
You can just dismiss them. But he really put it in the proper context when he told me that. He was like, the wannabes are the guys you have to worry about because they're insecure and trying to prove something. Leave it to a Puerto Rican video game nerd from Florida to enlighten me on that. It makes complete sense that he made that observation. But it turns out to be very true. It's the people who are insecure and trying to prove something. The people who don't feel like they are actually that thing who you have to worry about. And not just worry about in a gangster sense where they're the people who are going to rob you or hurt you. That's also what these people who are posturing street credibility are doing. It's why Seth Rogen needed to attack somebody for being upset about a break-in. Because Seth Rogen's a wannabe. A guy like that who's an actor, you know, I don't know what his background is, but he clearly wanted to signal publicly, and being a celebrity, it means a million probably several million people are going to see everything he says on Twitter. But he wanted to signal to people that he's more comfortable living in the city than this guy. And so he's a wannabe. He wants to come across like somebody who's a veteran of city life who gets his car broken into all the time and even though that's not harmful in the same way that like a wannabe gangster is dangerous because he's trying to prove that he's a gangster it's still aggressive and it's still offensive what he did is offensive to try to scold a guy publicly and so that's something to remember is that when people do that you know they're being aggressive and wannabes are usually more aggressive because they have something to prove. But that, it's, it's funny to me that that was such an early observation for me. And it, it even predated the whole Wigger thing. Because that was around the time, you know, that was when I became a teenager, that the Wiggers, and then even worse, the people who weren't full-blown Wiggers, who would occasionally kind of posture with like Ebonics language. That was even worse because it was like they were just flirting with it. They weren't willing to fully commit to being a wigger. They just wanted to like signal to you that like, I'm kind of street sometimes. I know the slang. But I noticed it earlier on and like not so much with my peers. I think it's something that really starts when you're a teen. I don't think little kids do that. I don't remember little kids doing that kind of posturing, like trying to seem tougher than they were. I don't remember that. Like, I don't remember people doing that in elementary school. I think it's something that occurs around puberty. I think it's something that occurs when you start to develop more self-awareness about your own situation. When you reach an age where you start to realize that, oh, I actually have had a pretty good life. Which gives me less credibility in some people's eyes. Which makes me soft. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take on this persona that makes me seem tougher. I don't see little kids doing that, but I noticed teenagers doing it when I was a little kid because my sister was a lot older. She was seven years older. So I, you know, and I'm not trying to call her out. I'm not trying to be critical of her, but I remember her doing it one time. You know, my mom had severe migraines, severe, like completely debilitating migraines. And when she would get these migraines, she said it would feel like somebody was sticking a knife in the back of her head and twisting it. And when she had one, she couldn't even take me to school. She couldn't operate a car. 
And so, and, and back then they didn't have all this medication for migraines that they have now, you know, this is 30 years ago. And they developed a shot. Like she had a specific doctor she would go to for this, for her migraines. He was like a migraine specialist, I guess. And they developed a shot called Imitrex. I think that you can take that in pill form now, but they had a shot version. And if you had a severe migraine, you had to take this syringe and shoot yourself up with it. And it was very new, but it was the only way to really deal with severe migraines. So my mom was one of the early users of this syringe. And um, it was a pretty big deal in our family that like, because our mom's migraines were a big deal because they were so debilitating that it was a big deal that there was now this medication she could take for them. And it was an equally big deal that you had to shoot yourself up with it. So the first time she ever had to do it, she took the Imitrex through the syringe and then she put it in the garbage. And I had never actually seen a syringe up close before. So I took the syringe out of the garbage and I, I was probably like seven years old. And I didn't touch the needle or anything, but I picked the syringe up by its base and I just like examined it. I just looked at it because I was like, whoa, it's a, a needle. This big syringe. It was big. And my mom ran over and was like, don't ever do that. You know, don't ever pick up one of those syringes and play with it. And my sister saw this. And a short time later, my sister's friend was over at the house. And I overheard them talking and my sister said, Oh, my mom used a needle the other day and she put it in the trash and like my brother got it out of the trash and was playing with it. And her friend goes, oh my God. And I could tell, I could tell like my sister left out all of the context. Like she didn't explain what that needle was. I could tell that she was trying to give her friend the impression that my mom was like a heroin user or something. Like she was trying to give her the impression that my mom had shot up a drug and that we live in such a lawless household, a lawless single mother, single parent household that we just live in this house. Like I could just tell from the tone and the lack of information and context she gave her friend that she was trying to communicate to her friend that my mom is a junkie and we live in this lawless household where like little brother just picks up his mom's syringe and plays with it. And I remember being pissed off because I knew what she was doing. And I love my sister. I'm not trying. She said this, you know, almost 30 years ago. I'm not trying to indict my sister when she was a teenager. But I could tell what she was trying to communicate to her friend. She was trying to communicate street credibility to her friend. And I knew it at the time. And it's probably my first time observing that. It was probably the first time I remember observing that. I was like, it pissed me off because I was like, even though I was a little kid, I knew what she was trying to do. And I didn't have the, the phrase street credibility in my mind, but I knew that she was trying to convince her friend that we came from some kind of tough household. Meanwhile, like my mom was shooting up a migraine medication that came in syringe form that was brand new. And she immediately stopped me from playing with the syringe when I pulled it out of the trash. But it just shows you that when you leave information out, people do the math on their own and it comes across like, 
our mom shot up some kind of drug through a syringe, which we associate with heroin unless somebody tells us otherwise. And little brother fished it out of the trash and was playing with it without saying that I was immediately stopped from doing that and told never to do it again. But it just shows you that if you just leave out a couple pieces of information, someone can get an entirely different impression. And so that's what a lot of people do when they try to posture street credibility too. So like I said, it was something I was very aware of at an early age that people want to give that impression, especially if they come from a household like mine, where we were never wanting for anything. Yeah, it was a single parent household, but we were never wanting for attention. We were never wanting for love. We were never wanting for food. We got the toys we wanted. You know, we had a good life. It doesn't mean we weren't wanting for other things. It, wasn't, it doesn't mean we, were, we lived a perfect life. But as a little kid, I was offended by overhearing that. I was offended that she would try to posture in that way. But again, I'm not trying to be overly critical of my sister. She was young. But it shows you that people have a need to do that. It shows you that people have a need to give that sort of impression to their peers, that they are tougher, that, they, that things are harder than they might appear to be. You know, and, and I don't ever want to come across that way myself. I mean, you see guys do it a lot. You know, a guy goes to the gym once and he tries to give the impression that he's some kind of assassin. You know, a guy does a little bit of fitness and wants you to think he could kick anybody's ass. Meanwhile, he's never been in a fight. A few years ago, I was, when I still drank, I was hanging out with a couple of friends. And my friend, who I like a lot, he's my friend, he kind of comes across like a tough guy. He doesn't claim to be a tough guy. He just kind of carries himself like a tough guy. And we were really drunk, and I, I said to him, we were just fucked up, and I was like, you know what, you're the guy that I would call if I had to get, you know, if I was ever in a situation where I needed a friend to come fight for me, I would call you. And his girlfriend just butted in. She goes, he's never been in a fight. And I just, I loved it, because it was like, he just carry. he's a big guy, and he carries himself like he can handle himself. And I, and as a result, when I was drunk, I was just like, you're the guy that I would call. You're the guy I would call if I was ever in a fight, dude. Just like a bro moment. And it was just so funny that his girlfriend immediately cut in and said, he's never even been in a fight, you know, and it had nothing to do with what, you know, he, it wasn't like my friend was trying to paint a different picture, but it was just so funny to me that she just called him out right there. But I noticed that with a lot of guys, especially the fitness people I pay attention to. You know, because there's some guys who do the whole fitness thing who are, you know, ex-military veterans. But there are some guys who are new to fitness. And because they're in shape now, they want to give you this impression that they are killing machines. And that's another form of this. It's just, it's not necessarily street credibility, but it's trying to communicate toughness. And so many people try to do that one way or another. They want you to think that they are tough. They want you to think that they are hardened. They want you to think that they are seasoned. 
And as someone who's always been interested in macho things, and I've had sort of an interest in violence, an objective, observational interest in the idea of violence, like I'm squeamish. I don't like to see actual violence, but obviously I've, I've had a longstanding interest in true crime, the mafia. I watch football. I like the idea of violence, like the theoretical idea of violence. And that's how you know I'm a nerd. Because I'm not like, I like violence. I'm like, I like the theoretical idea of violence. But there are people who have the same interests I have who want you to think that they're tough. And actually, the mafia thing is a good segue. As someone who's been heavily involved in mafia research for my entire adult life, and I've been part of many discussion groups, I've met a lot of people, there are a lot of people who think that in order to write about the mafia or even have an interest in it, you have to act like you are part of it. You have to act like you have this street credibility. You have to talk the way they talk. And when I, when I had those phone conversations with Michael DeLeonardo, who was a captain in the Gambino family, I wasn't trying to communicate that at all, and I thought that he respected that. I think he respected that I didn't get on the phone with him and, and be like, so, man, like, and I wouldn't even know how to do it. I wouldn't even know how to pretend that I came from his background. You know, his brother was killed by the mafia. Both of his mentors in the mafia were older men whose fathers were, were killed. Why would I ever try to pretend that I came from a similar world that he did? I live on the West Coast. And so when I talked to him and his friend Sal, who was a former mafia associate, it's not that I even made a point to be this way, but I just, I did not try to act at all like I had any personal insight into the world they're from. But there are a lot of people who deal with this subject, even just researchers, who try to act like they are involved in the mafia or that they have some special firsthand experience with it. They want to come across like they have street credibility. And there's even guys who take on fake Italian last names. There's a guy who runs a very active website dealing with this subject. And he's a Jewish guy who uses a fake Italian last name to, to write about the mafia. There's another guy I know of who does that too. And sometimes they'll even take on the slang. They'll take on that way of communicating and I'm just like, what are you trying to do? Well, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to communicate to people that you have some kind of street credibility, which gives your writing about this subject more credibility, but you're just posturing and everybody knows it too, especially the people who have street credibility. Like when I was talking to Michael, he's an extremely sharp person. He's not just some thug. The reason why he was a high-ranking member of a New York mafia family was because he's a very aware person. He came from the street. He came from Brooklyn. He committed crimes. But the reason why he was inducted into the mafia and attained a high rank at a young age is because he's a very shrewd man. And he was, in a, and he was a shrewd man in a world where everybody is lying all the time. And as a result, he knows when someone is posturing and when they're not. So I felt like we were actually able to have a more productive conversation because we just acted like who we are. 
And I noticed that he wasn't trying to posture at all either. At no point in that conversation was he trying to act like a big tough guy. Because what did he have to do that for? His story is well known. Like, what did he have to do? Nothing. He's exactly what Pablo told me about, which is like, that guy is an actual gangster. He was a high-ranking gangster. Yeah, he flipped. He cooperated with the government. He betrayed his oath. That doesn't make him less of a tough guy. And so when I was talking to him, not only did I not try to act like a tough guy, but I noticed that he wasn't trying to act like a tough guy either. Because what does he have to prove to me? I know exactly who he is. I've read his testimony. I know his story. And his story speaks volumes. And there's no reason for him to act like he was the biggest, toughest guy. And in contrast, during Coronavirus, during the lockdown, a bunch of peripheral people involved with the mafia started podcasts. Yeah, some actual real heavyweight mobsters also started podcasts like Sammy Gravano started one and he does posture a lot but he was a tough guy I mean he was the underboss of the Gambino family so it's like Sammy Gravano he doesn't so much posture that he was a tough guy as much as make himself out to be the biggest and the best but his story sort of backs that up even though he's a narcissist he, he was a real tough guy, but there were a lot of guys who started these new mob podcasts who were absolute nobodies. And guess what? Everything those guys say is them trying to prove how much badder they were than everybody else. Everything, because these guys were nobodies on the street, and I'm not saying they weren't criminals. I'm not saying they weren't tough people in their own right, but because they never gained any rank, because they never actually had any significance on the street... Their podcasts are basically dedicated to them trying to prove how significant and tough they were. So you can see where, like, even though those guys had a certain street credibility, they committed armed robberies, they stole, they were involved in gambling, drug trafficking. The fact that they never got any, the fact that they never attained any real rank causes them to try to let everybody know how great they were, how tough they were. So even people who have some credibility, if they don't feel like that credibility has been acknowledged, they take it that much further. They take the credibility they do have and they stretch it as far as possible. And that's what I was talking about when you have people who came from very easy lives. The girl I dated who was a young liberal white woman who grew up in a bubble. Like she took her one experience living near the ghetto in college for a couple months and stretched that as far as it would go. I hate to be so hard on her. I don't have any problem with her, but I knew what she was doing. You know, when Seth Rogen is like, you shouldn't be mad about someone breaking into your car because you ever heard of living in the city? I got my car broken into 15 times. You ever hear of living in the city? What he's doing is he's taking his experience and he's stretching it as far as he can to try to come across like he's some ultra, oh, you know, I'm just a city guy. And if you're a city guy, you never get mad when someone does something horrible to you because horrible things are going on all the time. Oh, there were were syringe caps outside of the post office. There There were a bunch of syringe caps. You ever heard of the city? 
I don't know. It's just, it's just something people do to posture. And, you know, of course, it's not just street credibility. Some people like to seem richer than they are. They like to seem like they have a cushier life than they have. They buy a nicer car than they can afford. They buy a nicer house than they can afford. They fabricate an entire life for themselves to seem like they have money. But another form of it, too, is like I worked hard for everything I got. There are people, many people out there who worked hard for everything they have. There are people with good lives who worked hard for what they have. But you can see where people who had relatively easy lives, and I say relatively, because, you know, life is, no matter who you are, your life has a certain level of difficulty. But there are people who have had relatively easy lives. Maybe they got a job through nepotism. And not to say they didn't work hard at that job. But still, the path was sort of paved for them. And those people will come out and be like, I worked so hard for everything I have. I worked so hard for everything I have. You know, even those people say that. And it's not to say they didn't work hard, but they want you to think that they really pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And that's another form of this. Because it's not that it's all about street credibility. It's just that people want you to think that their life has been tougher than it really has been. They want you to think that their road has been more difficult than it really has been. That they have some special insight into what that is. And, uh, you know, it's not that people don't do hard work and live tough lives. But it seems that anybody and everybody wants you to think that even when it's not true. I worked hard for everything I got. You know, it's just, you know, I don't, I don't even know what to say about that. And there is this competition element to it as well. Well, I worked harder. It's not just that I worked hard for everything I got. I worked harder than you. Or when you talk about working hard... I'm going to shame you. I still have this memory. I went to a, a, a party for a family friend. I was about 21. I think I was about 21 years old. And I had my first job after college, like my first job that required like overtime. The first time that I in my life that I had spent like 50 hours working that week. And it was stressful. And so I had never been in a situation where I would talk to adults and I, w- I would get to do that stupid thing you do where you're like, oh, well, you know, work's been really stressful. It's been, oh, man, I worked so many hours this week. But there was a an older guy there. And the party, the family friend was a, a middle-aged gay man. And he had really fun, great parties. And there were a lot of old gay men there. And they were fun to talk to. They were good conversationalists. And one of the guys there who I liked a lot... Um, He's now dead, so I don't mean to shame him or anything for doing this. Because he was, he was one of those older gay men who had snide remarks about everything, and it was funny. It was kind of bitchy, as they say. But uh, he and I would always talk, and my girlfriend at the time loved him, and they got along really well. And we got to the party and started talking to him, and he was like, so how are you doing? Like, what have you been up to? And I was like, oh, just working a lot, working way too much. And he goes... Well, that's just like that's just it's called work. You ever heard of work? Yeah, you know, I don't remember what he actually said, but 
him asking like, what, what have you been up to? And I was just like, oh, I was just working way too much. He like tried to shut me down for saying that. And part of it was just kind of his bitchy personality. It was sort of the way he banters. But I remember being like, God, I was just trying to do like that adult small talk thing. I had a long, stressful week and you asked me how I'm doing. And like now I'm at a point where I understand that like if you go to a party and someone asks like, what do you what have you been up to? How are you doing? It's not good conversation to be like, oh, I worked so much this week. Oh, it's so stressful. I understand now that I'm a little bit older that that's not even a good conversation. But I was so new to that life. I was so new to the world where you work 50 grueling hours. And I was so used to the fact that that's what adults talk about, that it was like the first time as an adult that I got to have that conversation. And the dude just totally shut me down. It was just like, you ever heard of work before? That's just called work. That's just called having a job. And I was just like, man... You didn't need to shame me and scold me for just telling you what I've been doing. But I feel like it was a form of that, like the scolding. The scolding that we do. And Alan Watts had a good take on that in a spiritual context. Because he was saying you can't even escape that competitiveness, that that one-upsmanship. You can't even escape that in spiritual circles where... Alan Watts talked about how like you come to some sort of spiritual discovery and somebody else who feels like they've gained a higher level from that, from your discovery will be like, oh yeah, well you realize that, but if you realize this, oh, you, you, you've unlocked this chakra. Yeah. But if you unlock that one, oh, you started meditating, huh? Well, come back to me when you've meditated for five years. Oh, you've meditated for five years. Come back to me when you've meditated for 20 years. Oh, you you were able to meditate for an hour? For an hour? Come back to me when you've meditated all day. You know, it's one of those things where you have that sort of one-upsmanship and competition. And you can also see it when someone's moved on from a way of thinking You know, I'll sometimes reference on here like the new Christians, and you see this a lot with them. They're a lot like the new atheists were, and a lot of them actually were new atheists five years ago. But some of these new Christians who kind of tapped into this counterculture Christianity that's become popular in recent years, which is an interesting phenomenon that I'm not opposed to. I think there might be, I think there is a net positive to it in many ways. Because I don't, I personally don't believe that that sort of material atheistic viewpoint is beneficial. And we can see where it still results in the same dogmatism. It still results in some of the same mythology. But you think that you've somehow moved past spirituality and religion. But I can see where some of the people who have found religion more recently through counterculture circles act like atheists used to. They're like, oh, look at these atheists. You ever heard of Christianity? And there's a guy that I... I wouldn't even call him an acquaintance. He's a guy that I've interacted with online who shares some things. and I have communicated with him, though, because he's a guy who... 
he's a Gen Xer who had been into underground music many years ago. And he's now Christian. And I don't really know this guy or what he's all about. He's an American guy. We've talked a little bit about older metal bands and that kind of thing. But I don't really know him. I know that he has a family and I know that he is a new Christian. He's very mean about it. Not to me. But he just has this very mean, hostile attitude. And it reminds me of somebody who was raised Christian, who suddenly became an atheist when they became a teenager. And now all they do is bitch about Christians. Because it's like they grew up in a really restrictive Christian environment. Now they're atheists, so all they do is dunk on Christians. Oh, you, you believe in Sky Daddy? You believe in Sky Daddy? Oh, that's so stupid. You know, that sort of attitude. And so this guy's basically doing that with all non-Christians now. Like, he, he makes these really snide remarks. Like, a little while back, it was one of the feast days. Like, he, I see this particularly with people who have recently adopted Catholicism. And it was one of the feast days, and he said something like, I went on a, whatever they do on the feast day, where, like, they walk behind, they go for a walk with the saint like a statue of the saint, like today I participated in like the, the feast day and walked behind the saint. What did you do? And it's like, is that really how you feel about the feast day? Was the feast day really for you? Was it really an excuse to just scold people who didn't do that? And, uh, recently this guy, was saying like, oh, you know, if anybody wants to move to my area, I have connections and I can help you get a rental. Like anybody who wants to move to my area, I can help you get a rental property, which is a nice gesture. If anybody's interested in moving to this area, I have local connections and can help you get a rental property. But then he finished it with Christians only. And I just saw that and I was like, you just, you had to be that way. You had to say that, didn't you? And so this guy, even though he's, he's older than I am and he has a wife and kid and stuff, and he comes from a similar background in terms of like he, he was involved with underground music to some extent. He was involved in the, the earlier counterculture to some extent. And he's rebelled against that. And I relate to that. I've rebelled against that to some degree too. But I can see where he really wants to scold people. And I don't want to scold him by saying this. I'm just, this is a parable. I don't want to scold him. But sometimes I'll see the things he says where he's, now that he's a a new Christian or Catholic, he has this strong desire to shame people who don't see things his way. And it makes me think of the Alan Watts, like the competition, even within religion and spirituality. We're like, I'm on a higher level. And, you know, it does seem unchristian to me, I think is what it comes down to. It doesn't seem very Christian to use your Christianity to simply scold people, to attack people. Christians only. I attended the feast today. What did you do? It's like, come on. Did you really, did you make it this far just to do that, man? But you can easily get into the game where you're scolding the scolder. Can you believe Seth Rogen said that? Can you believe Seth Rogen scolded a guy? 
because he was mad that his car got broken into? Can you believe that Seth Rogen, you know, you start scolding him for that. And you don't want to get into that mindset either where you're scolding the scolder. It's impossible to avoid it completely. Being a human, being an observer, you will inevitably scold the scolder. But, you know, it's a food chain. It's a circular, cyclical food chain, though, where anytime you scold somebody, anytime you criticize somebody, you are now opening yourself up for the same treatment. And I personally believe as a fallen human being, we can never avoid doing that completely. We can never avoid scolding each other a little bit or having some kind of agitated response to the behavior of other people. But it's important to remember that when you're bothered by somebody else and you vocalize it, you now open up the opportunity for somebody from their own vantage point to criticize you for doing the very thing that you're criticizing. It's this meta game of criticism. So if you do it, you just have to know what you're doing and why you're maybe why you're doing it if you can go that far with it. And when I observe these things, I kind of try to categorize them. Like the guy I'm talking about who's a new Christian who probably grew up disliking Christianity, like based on the fact that he was interested in metal and that he and I have talked about that. I have to believe he was probably, if not opposed to Christianity, not into it, probably critical of the Christian right and evangelists. And now that that has become part of this counterculture movement where you can become a Christian and that's part of some counterculture movement opposed to the dominant, more atheistic, secular culture that we're living in now. It's like you're doing, you're, you don't want to become the very thing that you were avoiding earlier on. And I see this too with politics where scolding the scolder is very popular in politics where a lot of the left's momentum in decades past was in opposition to the Christian right scolding everybody all the time. That's the reason a lot of us didn't relate to Christianity at all in the 90s and early 2000s when I came of age because we saw that the the dominant Christian culture was always scolding people and telling people what to do. And as a result, we didn't identify with that at all. It didn't seem spiritual to me. There was more to it, and those people didn't represent the whole of Christianity. They didn't represent all Christians. They didn't represent the core ideas. But it was difficult to see that because the more vocal Christians the more dominant Christians in our culture were spending a lot of time scolding everybody. And as the left has gained more cultural power, the secular left, they're scolding everybody and telling them what to do. And I obviously do this a lot on my show. But your gut response to the left these days is to scold the scolders. And part of that, I think, is just venting. 
Part of that is just a way of dealing with them. But you don't want to get attached to doing that. You don't want to get attached to just scolding the scolder and make that your platform. You want to know that you're venting. You want to know that you're pushing back against their influence. But you don't want that to be at the center of your being. You don't want scolding other people to be at the center of your being. And if you're a critical person like I am, if you're a naturally critical person, if you observe a lot of things and have a take on them, it's very easy to get caught up in your own criticism. It's very easy to center yourself around that need to criticize. But try to figure out why you're doing it. If it is just a vent, that's totally fine. But you should know if what you're doing is an attempt to try to get street credibility. You should know if what you're doing is an attempt to feel morally superior. Or if you're trying to seem more spiritually enlightened. Because if you don't realize what you're doing and why you're doing it, you're not achieving whatever you're trying to achieve by doing it. If anything, I don't think I'm trying to achieve anything when I'm critical. Sometimes I am. Like when I criticize the modern left, I am trying to lessen their influence in my own sphere. I am trying to keep them at bay. Even if I'm not doing it directly, I'm trying to do it psychically. So I do have a goal with that. I don't think about that goal, but I am trying to keep them at bay from swallowing me up, from swallowing everything I care about up. And that's a reasonable goal, to not get swallowed up. But I try not to criticize from a point of view that elevates me. Because when you do that, you're just putting platform shoes on. You're not actually elevating yourself. You're trying to seem a certain way. You're trying to carve out some kind of niche for yourself, but it's a false niche. And I think as fallen human beings, once again, we inevitably do that. But if you set the guideline for yourself, if you try to avoid doing it, because I can even talk about fitness and as I've gotten in better shape, as I've prioritized, you know, having some amount of muscle, being in lean shape. Sometimes like when I'm feeling very aggro about it, a part of me kind of wants to seem intimidating and I'm not jacked, you know, I'm not some big bodybuilder, but I, I do have some muscle and I do have some definition and stuff. And I am a physically active person. But it's very easy when you do that to be like, well, I want to act like a tough guy, too. I want to look like a guy and act like a tough guy. And a good friend of mine dropped a lot of weight and he started lifting weights. And uh, when he first started doing it, I think he settled into it now in the same way that I settled into it. But I noticed that when he, no, I didn't notice, we had a conversation when he first got into it a few years ago. 
And at that point, I was already kind of a little bit, I had been doing it for a little while longer. And so we were talking about, you know, lifting weights and we were talking about just getting in shape. And he, he made a comment to me where he said, you know, I just want to look dangerous. I just want people to see me and think that I look dangerous. And I sort of laughed to myself and I could feel myself feeling superior because it was like, I wanted to say to him, oh, you're going to realize that's not what you want. You're going to realize that when you get in better shape and you look more physically capable, that's actually a really juvenile thought. That's a really basic thought to think, oh, I want to look dangerous. You know, I almost, I didn't feel like mocking him for it, but I almost felt like scolding him in some way and being like, that's not the approach. And you're going to realize that once you actually are physically capable, that you actually don't want people to see you as dangerous. But I completely related to what he said. I completely related to that because you know what? I'm, I might have never verbalized it that way, but I absolutely felt that way and still occasionally feel that way. Where you get in good shape and you want people to notice that and be like, that's, I wouldn't want to mess with him. I wouldn't want to mess with that guy. A part of you still craves that. And so it wasn't that what my friend said was stupid or immature. He was just early in on his process. And one of his goals in that moment was to look intimidating. But once you look intimidating, you realize that you don't actually want to intimidate people. You have no need to intimidate people. If you know what you're capable of, that's all you need to know. It doesn't matter what they think. If you feel a certain... If you feel spiritually enlightened in any way, you have no desire to signal that to somebody else. This guy that I kind of peripherally know, who's a new Christian, who seems to have this strong desire to scold non-Christians, you know, it, it, it communicates to me that he's a little bit insecure, He's trying to really emphasize his Christianity to people because he doesn't feel that he truly embodies it. And yeah, that sounds like a Psych 101 analysis, but you know, Psych 101 is right twice a day too, like a clock or whatever I'm trying to communicate here. But um, it's true though. Psych 101 is, is right. It's silly the way we've adopted Psych 101 as the be-all, end-all of the way humans think and behave. But you know, Psych 101 is based on something. And often when we scold and posture, we are trying to define ourselves. We are trying to, um, we're trying to embody what we want to be because we don't feel that we truly embody it. Like my friend saying like, well, I just want people to look at me and think he looks dangerous. He was saying that because he didn't feel dangerous. He didn't feel that somebody is going to look at him and think, wow, that's a tough guy. Wow, that's a tough guy. You know, he didn't feel that way at the time, which is why he wanted to emphasize that. And, you know, a, a couple of years ago, I went to a party. A friend had a party. It was probably three years ago. And a guy I hadn't seen for a, a few years was there. And I was just outside. It was a summer day and I was just outside in a white T-shirt this is going to sound really self-congratulatory, but 
the guy came up to me and the first thing he said, he was like, man, you look like you're in fighting shape. And obviously that my ego felt good, but I was just sort of like, Oh yeah. You know, I work out. I didn't, I didn't say that, but it was just like, it felt good to hear that. It felt good for somebody who hadn't seen me for a while to come up to me and be like, wow, you're in fighting shape. Cause he wasn't joking. He wasn't mocking me. He was, he just hadn't seen me for a while. And that was what he said, but it actually humbled me. I was actually like, good. You know, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to explain what I felt, but it's kind of like, I felt like I was in fighting shape, but it's like having that acknowledged actually kind of made me feel embarrassed. Like it made me feel like, well, no, no, this is actually peacekeeping shape. This is just, I don't know. This is just normal. I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to verbalize what it was that I felt, but even though like I felt, you know, my ego was stroked by somebody saying that to me, because basically what he said is like, you look dangerous. You look like you're physically capable of fighting or defending yourself. And it plays into my friend being like, I just want to look dangerous. And it's like, I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to have that acknowledged. I don't know why that is. And it's not like I look dangerous. It's not like I look like some, like I said, I don't, I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm not somebody who walks in a room and people are like, oh, that guy must fight for a living. But it was something that somebody who hadn't seen me in a long time commented on. You know, I think what it is, I think him commenting on it, like why I felt embarrassed was that like somewhere that is one of my goals. Like when you work out, you know, it's hard to avoid wanting that to some degree. I think what, you know, this is real psych 101 shit, but like this, this guy I hadn't seen being like, you look like you're in fighting shape. It like forced me to deal with the fact that there's a part of me that is seeking that acknowledgement, that credibility. And so like having like, like receiving that sort of comment made me be like, oh, it just made me feel shallow or something. It made me feel petty. I don't know. I will move on from that, but. It was just an interesting interaction. When the reality is, the reason I'm into fitness and I work out is because honestly, every part of my being feels better for doing it. I feel physically better. I feel mentally better. I feel spiritually better. It makes my entire life more cohesive. It makes life easier to deal with. It's a component and it's an important component. That's why I truly do it. But the same could be said for everything I do that has some sort of benefit. It's the same reason why I meditate. It's the same reason why I read certain text. It's the same reason I pay attention to certain people. These are all components that fit together. These are interlocking disciplines. So that's why I do them, because they interlock, all of these positive disciplines interlock with each other. So that's a reason. But I have no street credibility, I'll tell you that. I have no street credibility. 
And, you know, I see this with politics a lot. You see this with guys who aren't veterans of the military. They aren't, they, they never served in the military, but people who kind of like want you to think they did. They want you to think they're a soldier. I see that on the right wing a lot, where a lot of people like they want to come across like soldiers. And they even start to adopt that way of talking. Meanwhile, they never even served in the military. It's basically a fetish or a fantasy they have. You know, it's what I've talked about before, the the desire to act like you have some sort of toughness or street credibility. Since the far left has adopted this phrase, fuck around and find out, fuck around and find out their version of don't tread on me. That's the same thing. Don't tread on me, fuck around and find out. It's Travis Bickle looking in the mirror saying, you talking to me? You talking to me? The reason why we laugh at that and the reason why the Travis Bickle looking in the mirror segment has been parodied to the point where a lot of people who have never seen Taxi Driver know that scene because they've seen it on The Simpsons is because we all know that's silly and we all relate to it. We all know what that is. That desire to seem tough, to seem like we can handle ourselves. Because that's kind of what people are getting at when they want you to think they have some sort of street credibility. And I saw that happen with kids who lived cushy lives and became weed dealers and start acting like they're Tony Montana because now they're selling an illegal drug, which is just weed. They take on the persona of a drug dealer, of a gangster. And that was always funny to witness. Like a kid starts selling weed in high school and next thing you know, he's acting like the toughest guy in the world. Meanwhile, a truly tough person could just walk over, grab all the weed and punch him in the face and the kid would do nothing. But uh, I'm going to close this one out. It's a topic that I find fascinating and I don't see addressed really. Like, we all know what an, an inferiority complex is. We all know what insecurity is. But I've never really heard a lot of conversation and dialogue surrounding street credibility and why people who come from backgrounds far removed from the street have such a strong need to signal that they have some kind of credibility in that regard. Why does somebody who spent a short amount of time living near a bad neighborhood, why does that person have such a strong desire to communicate that that gave them some sort of toughness? That that made them more real in some way? Why does a celebrity like Seth Rogen feel the need to act like living in the city and having his car broken into seasoned him in some way. Why does a guy like that who has proven so much, you know, who's accomplished so much, why does he have such a strong need to signal that to the entire world? Just checking, checking something. But uh, it's a good question. And I mean, I think it is just authenticity, credibility, 
I think it all comes from that place that we get it. I get it. But you should catch yourself when you find yourself doing that. Catch yourself when you're doing something just to signal that you have some kind of credibility, that you have some kind of authenticity. Because if you are authentic, why do you need to posture about it? It's self-defeating. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.